Okay, I'm here with Mitch Soloway. Mitch brings over 20 years of experience working for companies like Levelife, FreshBooks, Vidyard, ClearFit, FunThrough, all in being a senior marketing roles, VP of marketing, CMO of marketing. Mitch, it's a pleasure to have you here on the show. Thanks for coming. Oh, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Now, I read the story. You were working for FreshBooks, and then Michael Litt, who was the CEO of uh, Vidyard, he called, emailed you, and then you responded almost right away. What was the story behind that? Ah, I haven't been asked that question before. Um, so I was actually uh, on my way out of FreshBooks, and it's funny, I was thinking about as a marketer what to do next. And at the time, I was looking around and going, man, video <laughs> seems yeah. to be something that was really growing. Uh, yeah, I mean, YouTube was growing like crazy, and I could see all around mm -hmm. me, so there's so much more content on video. And it was something that I didn't really understand really very well. And I thought, you know, this could be uh, a new tactic that could be really interesting to get into. And in my whole history of being a marketer, I've really been exposed to all kinds of tactics. So whether you know early on podcasting, radio, obviously traditional just digital marketing, and was always fascinated by how to use new and different media to try and drive volume. So uh, as a marketer working in a startup, you're never done driving growth. So it's always good to be really keen and interested in video. So when I got the call from Mike, a couple things were going on. Mm -hmm. One was um, I'd already started thinking about my next opportunity, and I already had video on my mind. So I'm like, perfect. It just felt like, you know, why is this happening right now? It felt like right place, right time. So uh, very happy to take the call from Mike. But it was also like, I forgot who was it. Uh, what was the blog? I think it was somebody from Neil Patel's team actually, mm -hmm. uh, and they talked about the hiring and how hiring actually happens over the slower period of time. And you didn't jump straight into yeah. Uh, well, Mike Mike wrote a blog post that ended up on the the Kissmetrics uh, blog about mm -hmm. how he ended up recruiting me to be his VP marketing. So <laughs> good for him. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, you know. For, for me, you know, when you're a VP marketing and a senior marketing leader in a company, uh, it's very important that your values align with the founder. I mean, even the whole executive team, I always say, if, you know, broken at the top, broken at the bottom. So if your senior management team doesn't really get along and operate well, that's just going to translate to the rest of the business. So, you know, as a senior marketing leader, I always said my first job uh, in finding my next job was picking the founder I wanted to work with. Mm. And you know, it, sometimes it takes time to build that rapport, build that relationship, understand what their expectations are, realize if you can actually create more energy working together rather than you know, taking energy away. And this is someone that together where you both feel like, you know what, this is gonna be a good match. Which is probably yeah. the fundamental piece of any good consultant work. Well, it's good for anybody, full-time or otherwise, right? right? Um, you know, as a consultant, you, um, I always say you'll always have, if you're lucky, lots of opportunities in front of you, and then you just get to choose the ones that are most exciting for you. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, in, I've spent most of my career in, in full-time employment, but it's been the same practice. I'd encourage anybody, when they're looking at a new job or a new opportunity, you know, who you're going to spend a lot of time with, so who you report into, who your peers are, it's great to really get to know them and feel like this is a place that will allow me to be at my best. And because um, I still ultimately believe 
that the best way to get the best results is to have uh, happy, productive employees. And you can't really be really productive if you're not happy. And you can't be happy, I don't think, if you're not doing the things you like to do with the people you like to do them with. It always, almost always comes down to the actual team, right? Not necessarily sometimes the product, but actually the team you're working with. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, it does. I think that both are really important. So um, I have two thoughts. One is I tell everyone, I talk to a lot of people that are in transition or looking for the next opportunity. And one of the things that I say is, you know, figure out, like, it's really, it would be really great to work for a company that was working on something that you believed in. Right. Something you can get emotionally attached to. Because there are going to be good days and there are going to be bad days. And the good days, it's easy to come into work on the good days, right? When things are going really, really well. Mm -hmm. But on the bad days, when things maybe are moving sideways or backwards, you're still motivated to get up every morning and to come into work and really apply yourself because you actually believe in what you're doing. So I actually think that that's probably the, the first most important thing. If you just... If you're going to come into work and you're like, I don't get it, I'm just not energized by what it is we're delivering. I mean, this is my perspective, sure. by the way. Not everybody thinks this way, but a lot of people in the startup community, you know, they're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy mm -hmm. at work. So, you know, find, you know, and there, I've worked in so many different types of companies and there's always been something that excited me about it. And the second thing is, is this company set up to have you be at your best? Right. Because... Most people want to do, they want to work at a startup because they want to make an impact. But if you're going to come into a scenario where maybe it's not really the right job for you or the people around have different set of values or, or value different things or work differently than you, it's going to be really hard to get the full value out of yourself. So both things are really important. And having both those things work at the same time and having a whole company full of people that believe in the vision and the mission of the company and having people that share values and can work really well together, it's a, it's a tough combination to get right. It takes a lot of work. And I 100% agree, by the way, because I think those are absolutely the key things to, to be really happy and successful. The main question and probably the million dollar question is how do you, <laughs> how do you actually do that? Uh, what, is, what are maybe some of the criteria somebody can use to start looking in that direction? In terms of finding the right place right. to work? <laughs> So in terms of, I usually advise people a couple things. One is, I can't tell you what's going to excite you about a mission or vision. But, and some people maybe don't care, right? But I would say it's always better you know, to find something really exciting about. Because right. if you want to make an impact on the business and have them grow, it's going to be natural that people are going to celebrate the impact of the, that, that product or service, the success it's had in the market. So, when you're looking at a company, I always say, you know, why? My first question when I'm interviewing anyone, wherever I've worked, is like, why this company? You know, yeah. when I'm at FreshBooks, like, why FreshBooks? Right. And what I didn't want to hear was, well, I'm, it's a tech startup and I want to work for a tech startup. I wanted to hear that there was something about the business or the company mm -hmm. that really appealed to them on a personal level because I can't teach you that. So if I can build a team of people that are going to already come into work excited about what we're doing, you know, and they're not even working here yet, yeah. then yeah. That's, that's good for me and it's good for them. Um, the second thing is that I'll often do, and this is a sort of backhanded way of answering your question, mm -hmm. is they'll usually respond to a job description that I've posted. And what I'll usually do is I'll take that job description, I'll turn it over and I'll show them the blank page. They say, now, forget about the job description that you applied for. You know, this is a blank piece of paper and you can write your own job description what would it be? Like if it was only 100% of things you like to do, tell me mm -hmm. what you would be doing. 
because I'm smart. If I'm smart, that's what I'm going to hire you to do. And right. a lot of people don't yet know what those things are. And it's okay, because sometimes you're early in your career and mm -hmm. you're like, I don't really know yet what I want to be good at. And to those people, I would advise them to just pay attention. When you're at work every day and over the course of the weeks and the months, just pay attention to what kind of things are really easy for you to do. It's like, doesn't feel like work. What sort of things are harder for you to do? You know, what, you know, I always say like, what was a good day? What was a bad day? Yeah. And start to pay attention and start to just make notes and accumulate, you know, what are the things that you like to do? And for the people that have been doing it for a while, a lot of them already know, but they just haven't really collected their thoughts on it. And um, if you think about it, I tell everyone the best way to find the job that you want is to know what that job is. Right. So um, can I give you one example? Please, of, go so, for it. I love it. So one story I'll give is there was a company that um, was looking for a, it was a VP growth. Mm -hmm. And um, I won't name the company, but it was a really fascinating field. Mm -hmm. And one of their criteria in the job description was that you had to have deep experience in growth hacking and growth marketing, which mm -hmm. I did not. But I applied anyway, and what I did was, you know, I told them, I said, hey, look, I'd love, I think what you're doing is really interesting. Um, I'd really love to be part of that growth. And then I called out and said, I know you're looking for someone with deep experience in growth hacking. I said, I'll, right out of the gate, I'll tell you, that's not me. I don't have that experience. I value growth hacking. I can work and build a team around it, but personally, it's not for me. So if that's a showstopper, then, you know, then thank you very much and move on. But what I also did was said, you know, some things that I didn't see in the job description, let me tell you about some other things that I can bring to the table. And I started to rhyme off the things that I like to do and right. where I've been successful. And, you know, if I was in this role, this is what I would bring to it. And um, a funny story is, you know, I was pretty sure I was going to hear back. I didn't hear anything back, but it turns out the hiring manager ended up going on maternity leave and they had a hard time finding it. But eventually mm. they got back to me and said they wanted to have an interview. So... You know, that's a really good example of reframing, you know, yourself and what you're going to get in a role. And I say, how can someone at the other end paint a really good picture of what it would be like to have you in their company and what kind of impact you'd be making for the company and the team? And the better, the more you're able to do that, I think, the more likely you are to find a role that's going to be successful or... Yeah. But but it's also there's there's a marketing lesson I think in what you did, Mitch, in terms of like you actually said what you're actually you're this is not you, so mm -hmm. you're actually built trust versus mm -hmm. most people would say, Oh no no, I'm actually I am the best. <laughs> <laughs> but you said no no actually I'm not. So it's it's one of those things where, you know, when marketers actually say it mm -hmm. uh, in whatever way, mm -hmm. copy or mm -hmm. or video, say actually this like this restaurant is great, but this food actually sucks, but this right. is actually really good. So like the you would actually build rapport right away but it also you kind of like bring other things to the table so you're almost always like you're kind of like an advisor you're like hey these are the things that you know i can do and they might be useful to you yeah i think um i'm a big fan that i believe that people and teams and companies can succeed if they're set up to succeed so if you're looking for work you know if you really know where you're strong and where you can be successful and i know that maybe I need to be in a collaborative environment or, oh my God, I don't want to be in a you know, I need to be, I need to have lots of alone time. I need to work remotely, but whatever it is you need, the more you know what it's going to be successful for you to succeed in the types of work that you do and environments that you have, then, as I said, if you know what's going to make you successful, then you can seek that out. And, and it wouldn't be, I would never want, I mean, these are my values, yeah. but I would never want to misrepresent my capabilities 
or uh, or guarantee success in a scenario where I'm like, I, I don't think I can be successful because I'm just setting myself up to fail. Uh, and there's so many ways that people can be successful in a job that might even be different than the initial job description is laid out that you should you know, always try and frame yourself in a way that I, I would say as a marketer, right. good marketing is, is, is making promises and keeping promises, right? Yeah. So if I'm marketing out there and I'm telling the customer, my potential customer, if this is you and you have this problem, I can solve that problem for you. And if they come to my product and that is them and they do have that problem, my product better be able to, and I can solve that, right. then I've got a good business. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing for you in your job hunt. It's about making promises and keeping promises is if you put out there, say, hey, if you hire me, this is what you're going to get. And, I, and I'm really confident, no matter, you know, I don't know, I don't know how good I'm going to be at this or this or this, but I can promise you I'm going to learn, I'm going to work collaboratively with right. other people, I'm going to try this and that and whatever, then they're going to hire you for those reasons and those expectations, or they're going to go, oh my God, like that's totally not what we need. Which and is a good thing, your, which, which is not a bad thing. Absolutely. Actually. And I've told everyone in the interview process, this is a two-way interview. It's like, I need you to challenge me. I want you to tell me what you need to be successful so I can tell you whether that's here or not, right? So if you need you know, a lot of hand-holding, a lot of coaching and development, maybe this isn't the time for you. you know, come back in two or three years when we're a little more scaled up. You know, if you're somebody that needs little direction right. and, auton and lots of autonomy, then, you know, then maybe it is right for you. And speaking of, you said, the best way is when you know what you're looking for. Yeah. And it is so true. But you actually said it. I, don't, I think it was one of your blogs. You said, planning is important. Time flies in a startup. If you don't start with a plan right. for your own success, you'll quickly get swallowed up by everyone else's. <laughs> but it's, I, was, I read it and I was like, well, that's all, not only true in a startup. It's true in, the li in life. Like if a person doesn't have a plan yeah. or a goal, they 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 won't get anywhere. Like because they will be like they will be reactive to every single opportunity out there, and that we know what it leads to. Like people will be, they won't get anywhere. Well, that's a big question. So I don't know that I would go there because I think everyone's entitled to you know live their yeah. life. However, but I think people have a sense of people. People gravitate to things that they like, and they tend to stay away from things that they don't like. And this is really the same thing. Is like you know, move towards, move, the closer you can move towards, you know, things that are good, that you can, where you can thrive and be successful and enjoy things, is you're always going to be happier and more productive. I say in my role now as a fractional CMO, my proposition is delivering happy, productive marketing teams. Because I really think those two things go together. When people, you, you can't really be fully productive, and this is outside of work too, right. you can't really be fully productive if you're not happy. Um, you can be happy without being super productive. <laughs> so how do you, so how do you uh, get the two things together? And that's about aligning you know, how people like to work with the kinds of work that they like to do. And it's the same thing with living your life. You know, is, uh, some people don't want to plan stuff, sure. but that's part of their plan. Right. right? Talk to me about fractional CMO. Mm -hmm. This was one of my questions, actually. Yeah. What does it really, how does it work? And how is it close or different to consulting? Yeah. Oh, so... Um, I created, I wasn't sure if there were a lot of fractional CMOs when I created that role for myself, uh, and there may have been, but it was really actually taking my own advice. I need, wanted to design a role for me that played into all the things that I like to do, where I could do the good work that made me feel good and delivered maximum impact, and where I'd get to work in scenarios that I could be most successful, most mm -hmm. helpful. So for me, here's what that looked like. 
is um, also, and the other reason I wanted to do that work is obviously I'd spent like over 20 years as a full-time operator and it's always fun leading and growing and managing a team and operating. But I felt that I wasn't learning anything more as an operator and I felt that the most value I brought to an organization was more of the critical thinking in mm -hmm. terms of answering the questions of like, why are we doing this? Where are we going? Why did we make that decision? What should we be doing next? And, you know, who's our customer? And does this still make sense? <laughs> and, yeah. and the bigger questions. And so what I wanted to do was create a role for myself where I could spend most of my time solving those problems for startups. The other thing, having done this, you know, five or six times already, was I realized that very early on in the growth stage of a company, there are some really key foundational questions that you need to answer in marketing and get right in order to set yourself up to be successful. And it's, it's really heavy lifting, and I felt that that was a piece of value, a piece of leadership that I could bring into a lot of startups and make a really big difference. Mm -hmm. So I'll typically work with uh, a company that's uh, already got product market fit, so they've yeah. got a business going. They probably have some semblance of a marketing organization, even if it's you know two or three people, could be 10 people, right. but they're going on marketing, and, but now the curve is going up. And either whoever's leading the marketing team or running the marketing team or on the marketing team isn't quite sure how to scale past there, and the CEO isn't sure either. They're not maybe ready to hire a full-time VP marketing because it takes a long time. What if I hire the wrong person? So I present myself as somebody that's you know been there, done that. I've gone through this process a lot of times. I could quickly come in and for a fraction of the cost, so it's fractional on cost, but fractional of time, um, really solve those big problems at the beginning that will allow them to design a marketing operations that's going to succeed and deliver and help them start scaling up. And in some cases, then even backfill a full-time VP marketing role. It's a great niche to be in because, as you said, like it takes such a long time to get a VP and then it doesn't work out. Next six months, they, they fire that person and then they are, the team doesn't really know what they're doing. They're floating around. Yeah, and I think um, I didn't pick it because of that, but it was a, definitely one of the hardest roles to hire for is a VP marketing. And uh, it's just the work that I like to do. And in fairness, you know, when I ask a lot of the, the folks that I work with is, well, why, why go fractional? Why not just hire full-time VP marketing? And they just will say, you know, I don't even know who I need, what type of person to hire for this role, which is completely valid. And right. it's a great, you know, it's really generous of, of a CEO to say that. And I say, oh, okay, great. Well, you know, part of my role is going to really flesh out, you know, your, your strategy for growth and what you're going to need and what kind of leader you're going to need in that place. And... Um, so that's where someone on a fractional basis can really help out. And it's also interesting how it differentiates you from uh, a ton of other folks who are calling themselves consultants of any sorts. Well, some people still call me a consultant. I personally don't like the word consultant, but that's my own sort of problem that I have because I'm really um, a collaborator and I really, every client I work with, and even when I was working full time, you know, it, I was running it like I was owning, owning the company and I have to be that committed. Yeah. So when yeah. I choose my clients, I want to choose, to people, choose people that I really want to work with. Mm -hmm. I'm committed to their vision. I don't want to help the CEO and the marketers in that company really be successful. Right. So, um, um, so, but I'll be called the consultant and that's okay. But uh, Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you were marketing, I believe you were marketing employee number one at Level Life, which was a dating company back in the day. Yeah. I think it was early 2000s and I heard this crazy story that it was, it was um, 
set up or over the phone. So I was just, yeah. I was curious, like, what was it like? How did it work? And what kind of target audience you had? Because right now, dating apps are exploding. But yeah. I was just curious, what was it like? At that so time? it was 1993 oh, <laughs> wow. when I started. Um, there was no internet. There was no voicemail back in this day. And, um, you know, a little backstory to tell you what the challenge was, was there were these four founders, really great guys, that had, um, had this idea to take the classified section of the newspaper and put it onto like a, a voice service, this concept of voicemail. Because, um, you know, people would, you know, call and respond to a newspaper ad and maybe leave a message on your answering machine and then you got to call them back and back and forth. Mm -hmm. So they thought, well, what if we put all that stuff, we created a system where people didn't have to leave their personal phone numbers. So they went and basically wanted to put the classified sections into a voice system. And it was called Teleclassifieds. Okay. And so they had built this technology to record an ad, you know, uh, hi, I'm selling a refrigerator or a dining room set or whatever it is. And if you're interested, mm -hmm. you know, leave me a message and you can leave a message and then you could dial in and get the messages and the person at the other end would have an account. So you could basically communicate back and forth without having to give out your phone number. So is, is it like a, like, so you are, you have all those texts and apps right now, mm -hmm. Messenger, let's say you mm -hmm. send somebody a voice note, they would listen and send yeah. you a voice note back. Is it the same thing? Just yeah, it was called IVR, Interactive Voice Response. So um, it was, you know, you would dial in and you would, it would be a whole voice system. You'd navigate with your, your touchpad mm -hmm. um, on your phone, you know, press one to continue, two to this, whatever. Right. And uh, you'd navigate and you'd listen to all these voice recorded ads so instead of reading text mm. it'd be in voice and uh, the interesting thing is there's a big debate amongst the four of them of whether to include the personals because personal ads were in the classified sections but mm. it's just a small piece and they said oh, you know what we'll put it in there and sure enough you know uh, it didn't take long to realize <laughs> that it was that section uh, the personal ads where there was a lot of activity and they ended up remarketing it as telepersonals mm. and stripped out everything except for personal ads and it became you know a telephone dating service where people would call in and record just like the internet today you go in and yeah. you, you post an ad you would just go in and record an ad and people could go in and browse through mm -hmm. the listings on a telephone service and what was it um, I guess what was the challenge like growing that being early in a, mar on a marketing yeah, team? so uh, their challenge was no one had ever done this before um, and they'd had some success in a couple markets. So they were doing, they were expanding two ways. One was, okay, there, there were no 800 numbers, no call centers either at this point. Mm -hmm. So they would go market by market and they'd have to drop this business model into, it's called their expansion team, and they'd take this model into every market. And they kind of had figured out how to launch a market, but what they didn't know was how do you grow a business like this? So my, I was brought in to build out the best practices for that company is how do we figure out once we've launched every market, how to get it to grow and scale. Hmm. And, um, and I was there for nine years, and we grew oh, wow. from when I started of just under $2 million in revenue to being a $100 million business by the time I was, uh, it was nine years. That, that, that's, that's a it wasn't all me, though. I mean, it was, takes a lot of working pieces to make that, that happen. That, that was a huge growth. What about the target audience? Who hmm. were, who were the, the people using that? Yeah, so... Um, you know, the target audience were people that were turning initially to the personal ads in the newspaper. So it was really interesting. Um, we sort of used the, the personal ads like they worked like search. So what we did is instead of, um, you know, even though we were 
personal ads on voicemail, we advertised in the classified section of the daily newspapers and the weekly alternative newspapers. Mm -hmm. So we are, we're meaning there's already existing need for people and people are already gravitating to personal ads and they were just responding that way. And what we did by offering a really automated, more tech-enabled, even though it's just voicemail, mm -hmm. um, much more uh, private and secure way of meeting and talking with other people, we really started to explode that way. So our customers were also willing to, uh, to try something new. So mm -hmm. they were early adopters and they weren't afraid because there was a reputation for quite some time that the telephone dating services were just for people that were desperate or they were losers and there was nobody really attractive or interesting or anyone I'd want to meet on those things. I mean, there, this is the reputation of dating apps right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but that's okay because just new and different. It really wasn't understood yeah. or, you know, certainly it was just a new channel. So you think, well, who, you know, who can't find somebody in traditional channels? So it's just become harder and harder mm -hmm. as um, it just was harder and harder to meet yeah. people. So the market was going there anyway. And, but that was one of our challenges um, with the brand was how do we, you know, if we just got people just to get in there and just to listen, they'd start to realize that there's a lot of people just like them online. And part of the rebranding, because mm -hmm. it was just called Telepersonals uh, and the company was called Interactive Media Group, but part of rebranding of Lava, to Lava Life was to bring this, this uh, sort of under the covers type of business and just expose it. Right. And, and be a kind of brand that would have positive associations with it and where people would want to say, yeah, I'm on, I use Lava Life. And um, it was a really, really successful uh, effort in terms of um, bringing online dating and telephone dating out from under the covers to being something that was a lot more legitimized. Yeah, it's almost like creating a category in a way. Oh, absolutely. It was completely creating a category. And at that time when we came Lava Life, the category was already developed. Yeah. Um, but this was about how do we create our own unique brand that people could actually identify with and be a badge that they would feel good wearing. Mitch, what? so you, you, you made a comment about finding the, a good CMO, finding a good VP of marketing super hard. Mm. What makes it, What's the difference between a good CMO and exceptional one? And is it all or almost all context dependent? Yeah, I don't know that there's, I, I, I can't imagine there's one right answer to that. I mean, um, just like any hire, you know, right person for the right job at the right time. So, you know, for me, you know, I wasn't someone you'd want to bring in pre-market fit. You know, I could do it. And, yeah. but I just knew where my sweet spot was. I was really good at scaling up growth, as I described before. So if you already got product market fit and you're maybe doing 10, 100, 1,000 a month and you need to 10, 20x that, I can figure out how to do that. But then at some point, it might get to the size where I'm not good anymore because now I need to get, you know, to 500 million and right. 100, you know, whatever. And that's just not me. So mm -hmm. I think it really is context dependent. I think it's values dependent. And um, you know what's the what's the challenge you've got in front of you? So lots have been even though I'm sharing with you my perspective on you know what makes things successful and how I view things, there are lots of really successful marketers and CMOs out there that may have a very different approach than I would have, and in the same scenario, may also achieve success or maybe even better success doing things differently. So I don't think there's really one answer. Right. One yeah. There, there there's probably a ton of ways to play it. Yep. You said something like, which I, I thought was amazing, to go big, you have to go small. 
and you know it was interesting because I like psychology and mindset and all of that. And, you know, I find when you're trying to work towards something and trying to get better at something and it doesn't have to be just the person, like right. professional work, it usually never happens overnight or just there's rarely a big bang, like boom, like, oh, I, I'm, I'm like an overnight sensation. <laughs> it usually like a very small, happens in small chunks. Mm. How do you like see that? I guess in professional life and personal life, just you know, to go big, go small. So there's two things in there. Um, I, I know you're. I always said you got to go small to go big, and that was really about focus. And when you're trying to scale your growth, it's very tempting to see the size of the market in front of you and go, "Wow, look how big this is! Let's go get it all." But it's very hard to mobilize around that, and it's. I, I could say it's more like physics. Like, it's hard to push a really heavy boulder up a hill. So. And if you don't have more people to push the boulder, then you just got to shrink the size of that boulder down so you can actually move it. And that's about being focused on, you know, who are those customers that you should focus on first? So how do you create a set of goals and targets that feels like I can move that, right? And then the ball can get boulder can get bigger and bigger and bigger as you're successful. So that's just me. I, I'm a big fan of focus, um, and in my experience, you know identifying you know uh, a customer segment or a set of customers um, and usually I say let's find the customers that are ready to buy now um, right because if you're building a category and you're building a market sometimes it's just going to take time for the market to build behind you but um, if you've got product market fit and you've demonstrated there are people that are willing to buy this and say well let's just go find more people like them and not worry about everybody else because uh, even if you're focusing on one segment of the audience, it doesn't mean that other people won't find you as well. You're just not going to invest in acquiring those customers. And, and I think you had this great blog, by the way, uh, blog post, uh, the first 90 days where you outlined the three steps and uh, there was a step under the third, which was, I think it was a, just a, an extra step that said low hanging fruit, which I think yeah. what you were just talking about. Yeah, so, well... But other things could be... There, there are other things too, but I'll get to the second point. So, you know, got to go small to go big is, I think, that's about, you know, nothing, nothing fuels an organization more than growth and success. I mean, success builds, I say, success builds culture, right? right. It's very hard to sustain positive energy in a company that's just always failing. But if you're getting success uh, on a regular basis, then that really fuels more positive energy, which is why I'm saying if you go small and you create some wins along the way uh, and you can focus on tackling a different section of your target audience, then you can just get bigger and bigger and more successful. The other part of that was um, I'd written another blog post back when I was at FreshBooks called um, small, ball your, small Ball Your Way to Big Growth. Okay. And that was a baseball analogy that, yeah. that not everything in marketing needs to be a home run. You know, most of the successes that you that I've had in my experience have been the small hits, the singles, the doubles, right? How do I get, you know, half a percent growth here, one percent here, two percent there? And, and com you know, hitting, hitting a lot of those uh, adds up to a big number. And sometimes we, we see this big metric. Everyone wants to be 100 million in revenue at some point, whether it's two years, five years, ten years, yeah. whatever. And it's a big number. And it could tempt you to, to really swing for the fences. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there's just lots of things you can do on a day in and day out basis that will, not just in, you know, from marketing, sales, to support, to your product, to uptime, downtime, response times, like little things that um, 
that chip away at that growth. So don't lose sight of that and, and know that getting a lot of growth is a combination of, you know, hitting those, I call those four baggers every mm -hmm. once in a while, um, <laughs> right. but also chipping away at successes, right? And that's, that's good fuel for your company. Right. It's good fuel for your team. And what about like personal life? Like say mm -hmm. maybe, you know, like how do you plan your day when you're not working? Right. Like do you also use that philosophy or mm. it's more like you apply it in your in actual work? Well, it's a good question. So, so much of my career has been a lot of my work, right? I've been very passionate about the things I've worked on and I get a lot of just personal life energy from the work that I do. Yeah. And not everybody's wired that way. And really, um, I'm at a phase now where part of moving to being a fractional CMO is I set some other personal goals in there. One is uh, I want to spend more time maximizing, like delivering the maximum value that I could deliver to an organization. I didn't want to go in and be, as I said, be a full-time operator. So I felt that 80% of the things I'm going to do day to day, somebody else could do really well, maybe even better than mm -hmm. me. But there's a 20% in there where I really think I can nail it and really have maximum impact. So I wanted to do that. That was a personal choice. I also didn't want to work seven days a week. I actually wanted to work like three or four days a week, but I still wanted to maintain you know, close to the same income. I wasn't really bold. I didn't say I want to make you know, a gazillion dollars. That's not a personal mandate of mine, but sure. you know, I wanted to support the lifestyle that I had and I had to bake that into my plan. And I also wanted to risk mitigate. So I've always was fearful of not making income. What happened if I don't have any clients? So I designed a practice that was really solving more longer term goals mm -hmm. and it was not project based. So that if I hooked up with a client um, and also because I was not going to be a full time employee, I still really enjoy collaborating and working with other people. So when I designed the work that I want to do now, mm -hmm. it was really fueled by my own personal interests is how do I make me happy? Again, knowing that if I'm really happy and I knew where my strengths were and I can spend more of my time working on the things that matter, I can probably even have a bigger impact than I had before and also even get more satisfaction from my own personal life. Because I also still think that if you're really happy at work, that really carries over into your personal life. And rather than coming home and complaining about all this baggage that you're talking about uh, at work, uh, if you come home and you're like, wow, it was a, you know, the more good days you have, it's just a good day at home. It's a good day with your family and your friends and plays out that way. Which uh, kind of supports uh, a theory that Jeff Bezos talks about that the life balance doesn't really exist uh, or work-life mm -hmm. balance. It's more about the harmony where, and if it sounds, to, it sounds to, uh, to me that you have a harmony in terms of, sure, you spend a lot of, or you used to spend a lot of time at work, but mm -hmm. you were perfectly happy because that's how you see yeah, that for that time. It was the right amount. Like, I, man, I just love coming into work and chipping away and, and building growth and building teams and helping people be successful. You know, um, I was very deliberate in the choices I made of where I worked because I got really excited about that. And then it just got to the point where, you know, as you, you know, as you learn more about yourself and what you want, and I'm thinking about like the next 10, 15 years of my life, where do I want to spend my time next? And there's a lot of wisdom that I've accrued. And there's a lot of people out there that really want to benefit from that wisdom and where I can be helpful, whether it's at the company level or the personal level. I, I do also have a part of my practice where right. I'm working either directly with heads of marketing 
and they want to be better. They want to become a VP marketing one day. And I just work, you know, maybe two or three or four hours with them every week. And we, we work together and we build plans together and I help them sort of create those breakthroughs. Right. Or I'll just be a bit of a marketing coach for some folks. Or I'll be a thought partner for a CEO. Yeah. I'm not in there in a fractional way, but, you know, as a co-founder, maybe I'm a co-founder and I've got marketing. I have no marketing team. So I want to talk to somebody that can help me make sure I'm making good decisions. That's fun for me to do yeah. as well. No, it is, it is pretty cool. Mm. What, since you spent so much time in marketing, mm. what is the one or two controversial things that you hear that are being recommended to marketers to do? Or, uh, um, well, boy, <sighs> controversial things. Well, I think there's still enough tension around brand versus growth. And... Um, there's some debate, you know, it used to be that growth marketers would uh, think that all brand marketers did was just spend money and not be accountable. Right. And, you know, and sometimes that's what they did, but it wasn't really their fault. Like, that was their, that's what they were rewarded from. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that brand people, you know, think, well, the growth people don't know really anything about marketing. It's, you know, you know so, you know, I'm like, well, they're both great, right? Yeah. You know, a really successful company if you get a great brand and great growth, you know, I don't care how you grow, you know, I mean, I do, if it's unethical, I personally have a problem with that. Yeah. But, you know, any, any capability that leads to business growth that lines up with the practice of the company is good. And, and branding and having a great brand is part of that. And I always say, man, you know, who wouldn't want a great brand out there, even as a growth marketer, if I can create you know, have people talking about my business in a really positive way, then they're more likely to convert too. So yeah. I think we need to stop um, debating this is better than that. And if stuff works, it works. And I think, you know, the today's CMO or VP marketing needs to embrace both things. And one thing that I've really seen is there's mm -hmm. been a, the pendulum has definitely shifted a lot more towards growth marketing in the last, let's say, five or 10 years. And what's starting to happen now, and it's a great credit to a lot of the leaders is going, you know what, I need to be thinking about my mm -hmm. brand now. And a lot of them are putting up their hand and saying, I don't even know a lot about that. And, uh, but it's great that they're starting to ask the question. Right. But really, I think uh, it's, I'm, not that I'm tired of the debate, but there's really no point in debating it. It's like growth is growth and there's different ways of going at it. And as a marketer, I'm excited every day somebody has a new approach to solving problems of how do you scale up uh, customer acquisition in particular. So today's VP marketing or CMO really needs to embrace all of that. I know we have to run mm -hmm. soon, but mm -hmm. I wanted to touch on the personal or time management and mm -hmm. how do you bring your focus into daily work. Mm -hmm. So let's say if you're, you know, you're starting your day, mm -hmm. do you have like certain special morning routines? And then how do you actually plan your day? How do you actually manage your time to make sure that you get done the most important things? So most important things start at the very beginning is, you know, I say I really like focus, is it's very important for me to have very clear priorities for my deliverables. At least, um, I personally like to think three years out. Um, whenever I was working full time or now when I do the fractional work, is I'll work with a CEO and I'm like, talk to me about where you are three years from now. because. Um, I just need to plan on that horizon. Mm -hmm. If I know where, where you need to be three years from now and what marketing's role is, then I can work back to year two and say, okay, well, if year two were here, then a year from now I need to be here and here's where I am today. Yeah. And then I go, oh my God, how am I going to get from today to year three? So um, a part of that is then 
part of the planning process is creating a set of priorities. And the priorities may change year to year. It's okay, year mm -hmm. one, it's really important that I get these three things right. And one of those three things may not even have an impact in year one, but it might be something I need to start doing in year one, because if I don't do it in year one, it ain't gonna happen in year two. So I let um, an overall clarity of priorities and focus and deliverables drive my actions. And, and that grounds me so that there's lots of things that are always happening in business and in marketing mm -hmm. that every day, me, and then I do the same thing for my team. My team always knows the priorities. Every day I come into work, I always, there's absolute clarity yeah. of where I need to spend my time and energy. Do you do like a, you create like a list or you go by calendar or you just... Uh... So the priorities are always written down. I actually build it into a whole process. I, I work with a management team. We, we write the priorities out. Then I'll write a set of goals and deliverables and we'll do the same thing for every team member. So right. it becomes um, operationalized mm -hmm. on the team. That's part of building a good ops that everybody has very clear goals and deliverables. At least for every quarter, I know what I need to deliver and by when. Right. and what success looks like, and then you can coach people through that. In terms of my day-to-day, -day, I know personally I'm a lot more productive in terms of uh, critical thinking uh, in the mornings, mm -hmm. and the afternoons, you know, I'll lose a little bit of steam, so um, I'm better on collaboration stuff in the afternoons. So if there's stuff where I just need to mentally burn through things myself, I'll do that and schedule those things in the morning. And when there's times for maybe team meetings or, um, you know, I need to meet with an agency or I need to meet with someone and help them solve problems, then I can get the energy out of that conversation in the group to fuel me through the rest of the day. And then sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, at night, <laughs> yeah. you know, the brain starts going again and I'll, um, um, I'll park, I use my subconscious quite a bit where... Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll know there's a problem I need to solve, so I'll sort of kick it to the back of my brain and let it sit there and not think about it, and then know it's just going to spit itself out. And, uh, and that's normally how I'll plan my day. The other thing I'll add in is there yeah. are certain things that need to get done, and if I need time to schedule time to think about something or plan something, I'll just put it in my calendar. Right. So, uh, and sometimes I'll plan things, which is, you know, think about this. <laughs> plan time to think. Um, I found that's always been a real important part of my day is if it's just go, 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 and I'm not able to just step back and spend some time thinking about the problems that I'm solving, then I'm also not going to be effective. So and I plan my thinking time. Yeah, and so many successful people use that. Uh, I've heard it from Jeff Bezos from CEO of LinkedIn, and they all put, put like they, they all block slots to just not do anything, to just make sure to, to work on thing, the thing that is really important yes. versus just going back to back from the meeting. You actually don't even remember what you talked and about. And my goal as a leader was always to have nothing to do, right? Where there was nothing that I actually needed. I mean, obviously, there's meetings and things that go on, and that I would be, I could help the company and my team be their best if I could put my energy towards, again, always making sure they were clear on where, what they needed to do, help them optimize and figure out how to make their plans even better. So investing in the people around me and then investing in thinking about what's next for the business. Mitch, any favorite business books or marketing books or psychology that you liked or you may be coming back to or were impressive stuck with you? Um, I'm not a big book guy like I'll read some books I'll tell you though uh, funny enough um, I took a course that was derivative of the spin selling technique for oh, yeah. sales yeah. and uh, there was a period of time where I worked um, in a very sales driven organization it wasn't high tech and it was industrial old school manufacturing completely different from anything I'd done but it was very sales driven and there was a lot of sales training that went on and I found that understanding how to sell was such a great 
fuel for understanding how to market. And uh, you know, spin selling really talked about taking a non-sales position is like, if I have to sell you something, it's gonna be a lot harder than if I can help, if I can identify that you've got a problem that I can solve. And um, the more I understand how you understand that problem, and I call it, is this you marketing, where it really shifted my attention from promoting who we were to saying, is this you? You know, and mm -hmm. helping your prospects or target audience identify themselves as qualified or not. Right. And uh, it was probably the most significant bit of training or education that really had a transformative approach for me as a marketer when I got to understand you know, how sales worked and how to sell really effectively. At least that approach really resonated with me as a marketer. Yeah, I mean, sales is such an important part. It's an integral part of any business and marketing. Yeah. Uh, where is everybody can find you online? Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn, just Mitch Solway. Uh, I've got a website, it's thinkmitchthink.com. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, and we'll or, link it in the, in the show notes so everybody can go and check yeah, it out. Yeah, I'm just Solway at gmail.com as well if you want to reach out to me that way. Mitch, it was a pleasure. Thanks a lot for your insights and really appreciate your uh, this, uh, you coming on to, to chat. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.